this is a quick note before this week's podcast. I got it to my wonderful editor, John Taylor Williams, a little late for mastering, and he had already started his week. So you're getting this midweek. The stuff that you're about to hear references stuff that was going on at the weekend. That's when I recorded it on Sunday afternoon. Obviously, you're getting this a little later. Hello, and welcome back to the Cory Doctorow Podcast. I'm back after my hiatus from last week's visit to Des Moines, Iowa for Demicon. Thank you to everybody who came to all of my panels and events there. I think some of them might have been recorded, and if they are, I will put them online when they come up. On June the 8th, I will be giving some kind of talk, no longer a keynote, for OpenJS World in Austin, and I will not be there in person because that is the day that the U.S. Customs and Immigration Service is interviewing me to see whether or not I'm going to become a citizen. But if you happen to be in Austin that day and you're at OpenJS World, you'll be able to hear me say something, although we're not sure exactly what. Things are in a bit of chaos for some fairly sad reasons. One of the top executives at the Linux Foundation died very suddenly, and it's thrown the whole organization into some kind of uh, disarray, understandably, and they're the ones who are booking me in for this event. I will be in person for next year's OpenJS World in Vancouver, if you're a regular attendee. I'm sorry I'm going to miss you this year. I will be in London for the UK Competition and Markets Authority Data Technology and Analytics Conference June 15th and 16th. I've actually figured out how to make that happen. And I did so with the help of my congressman. And so here's the thing I learned in this that I'm going to tell you if you happen to be an American resident. You don't have to be an American citizen. Turns out that Congress people's offices are really good at helping the people in their district deal with federal agencies. In fact, there's a whole set of paperwork for this, where you can just go and fill in some paperwork that authorizes your congressperson staff to work on your behalf with whatever agency you're having trouble with, be it the IRS or Department of Housing or Department of Health or any of the other federal agencies that you deal with. And I learned this because I have an EFF colleague who worked in Congress and who did some of this work for her congressman. And she told me my congressman, Adam Schiff, with whom I, it must be said I have some very stiff political differences, is known to be a very good boss. And he's also a long-standing incumbent. He's won several terms. And that means he has a very experienced and loyal staff. And they're really good at solving problems for their constituents. I had never realized this. It's a bit weird. It's a bit like boss politics and, you know, the Tammany Hall where you go to the local boss and they sort out things and smooth it over. But, you know, I'm grateful for it. They really helped me out. So I got to go to London and I got to become a U.S. citizen. And it's going to be great. Um, I will be remote for A New Hope. That's the 2600 conference in New York, I think, on Long Island on July the 24th. My congressman didn't help me with that one, but I'm going to be there. If you follow me on Flickr, you will have seen that I finally finished my long-standing project to have my uh, excised arthritic hip that I had replaced in January cast in brass and then machined so it has a screw fitting and then mounted to a custom cane. I was able to do this courtesy of a couple of friends here in the neighborhood in Burbank. My friend John Park, who's ex of Disney, now works for Adafruit and is an all-around amazing maker. He was at Make for many years. And then his friend, and now my friend Rocco Florimonte, who's a Disney animator, who also just has a gorgeous little machine shop in the back of his place around the corner from us here in Burbank. So we all hung out yesterday and drank some very nice bourbon, it must be said. If you have a chance to buy some Uncle Nearest, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uncle Nearest, it said, is the uh, enslaved person 
who was sold to Jack Daniels because he wouldn't stop moonshining and taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. And black distillers took up the name and are distilling booze in his name. And the bourbon was astoundingly good. So thank you to Rocco for introducing me to that and for helping me out with my cane slash shillelagh. Today has been a very busy day. I have uh, my locust column due, and I had my medium column due, and I also had a piece of work due for a magazine called Fatherly. I interviewed my old pal, Kim Stanley Robinson, about his new book, The High Sierra. And that interview, along with a review of his new book, will both come out this week. And so I'm really looking forward to that. And then in other writing news, for many months now, I've told you that I've been working on my second Marty Hench novel, uh, a book called um, Picks and Shovels, that chronologically, this is a little confusing, chronologically was his first adventure. The first Marty Hench novel that comes out in 2023, Red Team Blues, will be his last adventure, and this was his first adventure, that was going to be the second one, and then a third untitled one was going to be the third book, but it was going to take chronologically between those two. Anyway, that was way too confusing. And um, earlier this month, or last month, when I was on Catalina Island, the entire plot for that third book materialized in my head, and I realized that it worked much better as the second novel. So I started work on that book this week, and it's going to be the second one, probably late 2023. And it's going to be called, or at least provisionally it is called, Some Men Rob You With a Fountain Pen. And that one is going great guns. If you follow my daily word counts in my newsletter or on my blog or on Twitter, you will see that one growing by leaps and bounds as I work on it. And I'm hoping this week to start work on the Internet Con. This is the book that was formerly called Seize the Means of Computation, and it is the book about interoperability that I'm writing for Verso. We also collected all the blurbs this week for our book Choke Point Capitalism, me and Rebecca Giblin, about labor markets in the digital age and monopoly. That book comes out in September. So there's a lot of books, eight books in production right now, and they're all firing at once. And I'm feeling pretty good about it, except, as I said, I'm a little overextended today. So I'm going to go straight to the reading now. It's the column that I wrote last week while I was in Des Moines in my hotel room at a Holiday Inn and had to get a column out. And it was sparked actually uh, by Kathy Gellis's piece on Tech Dirt. And you'll hear that I quote her there about why it's not such good news that Ukrainian John Deere dealerships were able to brick a bunch of tractors that Russian military looters had transported to Chechnya. And why, even though that story is very delicious, it's got a dark side to it. And I should say I made a small error in this, and um, it's been corrected. But basically, I said that there was a data practice that was currently underway where John Deere tractor owners couldn't find out what data it collected unless they bought it as a package with seed. And it turns out that John Deere may now be selling farmers that data, that they've changed their policy since. If you read the original and were confused, I apologize. I was only going on what a John Deere executive told me in person at a conference a few years ago. I had not had an update. I'm sorry for not checking that before I published it. Anyway, without further ado, from doctoro.medium.com, about those kill-switched Ukrainian tractors, what John Deere did to Russian looters, anyone can do to farmers anywhere. Here's a delicious story. 
CNN reports that Russian looters, collaborating with the Russian military, stole 27 pieces of John Deere farm equipment from a dealership in Melitpol, Ukraine, collectively valued at $5 million. The equipment was shipped to Chechnya, but it will avail the thieves not, because the John Deere dealership reached out over the internet and bricked those tractors, using an inbuilt kill switch. Since that story ran last week, I've lost track of the number of people who sent it to me. I can see why. It's the perfect cyberpunk nugget. Stolen tractors, rendered inert by an over-the-air update, thwarting the bad guys. It could be the climax of a prescient novella in Asimov's circa 1996. But I'm here to tell you, this is not a feel-good story. I mean, sure, in the short term, it's really cool to think of those looters arriving in Chechnya only to discover that their looted tractors and combines and such are only good for spare parts, and maybe not even that. But if you scratch the surface of that cinematic comeuppance, what you find is a far scarier parable about the way that cyber warfare could extrude itself into the physical world. After all, if John Deere's authorized technicians can reach out and brick any tractor or combine anywhere in the world, then anyone who suborns, hacks, or blackmails a John Deere technician, say Russia's storied hacker army, who specialize in mass-scale infrastructure attacks, which they perfected by attacking Ukrainian embedded systems, can do the exact same things. Why are John Deere tractors kill-switched in the first place? Here's a hint. The technology was not invented to thwart Russian looters. No, it was invented to thwart American farmers. For most of John Deere's history, it partnered with farmers on its technological development. I mean that literally. John Deere used to send engineers on the road to visit farms and learn how farmers had adapted their equipment, and then it would integrate those improvements into new models of its tractors. Farmers have been making, fixing, and adapting their technology for millennia, literally. Farms have workshops and forges, because when you're at the end of a lonely country road, and the storm is coming, and you need to bring the crops in, you can't go into town, or call the Deere dealership, to get a key piece of equipment repaired. But as John Deere went from just one of many ag tech companies to a monopolist, its relationship to farmers was transformed. Deere perceived many opportunities to extract new sources of revenue from farmers. For example, they fitted out their tractors with clusters of new sensors, torque sensors on the wheels that measured soil density, humidity sensors on the undercarriages that measured soil moisture, and location sensors on the roof that plotted density and moisture on a centimeter-accurate grid. This information is very useful. Farmers can use it to practice precision agriculture, broadcasting their seed according to those maps to maximize yield. But farmers couldn't get that data, at least not on its own. Deere originally bundled that data with an app that came with seed from Monsanto, now Bayer, its preferred seed vendor. The farmers generated the data by plowing their fields with their tractors, but Deere took the position that the farmers weren't the owners of that data. Deere was. Deere bundled the data with the farmer and sold both to Monsanto. The next time someone tells you, if you're not paying for the product, you're the product, remember this. Those farmers weren't getting free ad-supported tractors. Deere charges six figures for a tractor. But the farmers were still the product. The thing that determines whether you're the product isn't whether you're paying for the product. It's whether market power and regulatory forbearance allow the company to get away with selling you.
But selling farmers their own soil telemetry was only the beginning. Deer aggregates all the soil data from all the farms all around the world and sells that to private equity firms making bets in the futures market. That's far more lucrative than the returns from selling farmers to Monsanto. The real money is using farmers' aggregated data to inform the bets that financiers make against the farmers. If you've heard anything about the technical restrictions in a deer tractor, chances are it wasn't about this data theft. More likely, you've heard about Deere's right-to-repair shenanigans. Deere is one of many companies that practice VIN locking, a practice that comes from the automotive industry. VIN stands for Vehicle Identification Number, the unique serial number that every automotive manufacturer stamps onto the engine block, and these days, encodes in the car's onboard computers. VIN locks began in car engines. Auto manufacturers started to put cheap microcontrollers into engine components and subcomponents. A mechanic could swap in a new part, but the engine wouldn't recognize it, and the car wouldn't drive, until an authorized technician entered an unlock code into a special tool connected to the car's internal network. Big Car sold this as a safety measure to prevent unscrupulous mechanics from installing inferior refurbished or third-party parts in unsuspecting drivers' cars. But the real goal was eliminating the independent car repair sector and the third-party parts industry, allowing car manufacturers to monopolize the repair and parts revenues, charging whatever the traffic would bear, literally. And, as with Deere, Big Car also wanted to be able to gather data on drivers and sell it to third parties. Your car gathers a shocking amount of data about you, which you don't get to see, and the manufacturer sells that to third parties who use it in ways that are counter to your interests. The auto manufacturers freely admit that the data your car gathers about you could bring you to grave harm. Indeed, when Massachusetts voters put an automotive right to repair initiative on the 2020 ballot, Big Car ran scare ads warning that allowing third-party access to your car's trove of data would literally lead to you being murdered. Of course, according to the auto cartel, the correct way to address this risk is to preserve their repair monopolies, as opposed to redesigning cars so they don't spy on you. And of course, one of the services a third-party repair ecosystem could offer drivers is the option to turn off all that surveillance. VIN locking metastasized out of the automotive sector and took root in every part of our lives. Apple would love to VIN lock its phone screens, and they've done so several times, but had to back down after customers and independent cracked screen repair places raised hell. After the FTC and the Biden administration threatened to directly regulate Apple to force it to facilitate repair, the company created an official home repair program, albeit a very limited one. Other sectors have been more successful in rolling out VIN locking. One company that led the way here is Medtronic, the world's largest medtech company, and thanks to an Irish reverse merger, one of the world's least taxed medtech companies. For more than 20 years, Medtronic's PB840 ventilators have been the workhorses of the field, but Medtronic decided to juice its profits by VIN-locking the parts in the PB840s. Hospitals, like farmers, have fixed their own equipment since time immemorial. When a patient has a medical emergency, you need to be able to fix whatever piece of gear their doctors need, not call a manufacturer-authorized technician who will arrive days or weeks later. That was terrible before the pandemic, but when the world's demand for ventilators spiked just as Medtronic's authorized service technicians were grounded, this VIN-locking racket became a major threat to public health. 
Hospital technicians around the world scrambled to nurse their PB840s along, keeping them in service. A common PB840 repair involves swapping a working screen out of a busted ventilator into a working ventilator with a busted screen. Screens are VINLOCK components, though, so the resulting perfectly functional device would not work until an authorized tech flew out to the hospital and typed in an unlock code. And remember, the pandemic grounded all those technicians. Thankfully, an anonymous Polish ex-Medtronic employee had kept the unlock code generator from his previous job, and he cloned it, packaging the resulting gadget in whatever enclosures he could find, old guitar pedals, table lamps and alarm clocks, and mailed them to med techs at hospitals around the world, saving lives. Why did this hero remain anonymous? Because he was breaking the law. Article 6 of the EU Copyright Directive bans the production of circumvention devices that bypass VINLOCs. In the USA, Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA, makes trafficking and circumvention devices a felony, punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine for a first offense. Every three years, the U.S. Copyright Office holds hearings on DMCA 1201, in which they entertain petitions to allow users of locked devices to bypass those locks. Yes, you have to ask the U.S. government for permission to reconfigure your own property. And yes, mostly, the answer is no. In the 2017 edition of these exemption hearings, John Deere filed a stunning brief with the Copyright Office. In it, they explain that farmers do not own the tractors they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on. In fact, farmers can't own these tractors because the software that animates these tractors and enforces VIN locks and restrictions on using your own data belongs to Deere for the full term of copyright, 90 years, and the farmers merely license that code, and they are bound by the terms of service they have to click OK on every time they switch on their ignitions. Those terms specify that even if a farmer repairs their own tractor, swapping a broken part for a working one, they must pay hundreds of dollars and wait for days for an authorized deer technician to come out to the end of their lonely country road and key in an unlock code. This is the system that let the Ukrainian deer dealership brick those tractors between Melitpol and Chechnya. Tech monopolists love kill switches, and they exhibit heartwarming confidence in their own ability to prevent their abuse. That confidence is terribly misplaced. These can and will go wrong with terrible consequences. It's important not to get swept up in the industry's self-serving cheerleading about these kill switches working in ways we like because of all the ways they can go wrong. Back in 2019, progressives gleefully circulated a new hack. Whenever your local far-right thugs parade through the street, you can blare pop music at them. The music will be detected by the copyright bots that patrol YouTube and other services, and your local Nazis won't be able to use video from their public demonstrations as propaganda. At the time, I warned that these bots were not your friend and prophesied that they would do more harm than good. I was right. During lockdown, copyright bots misidentified all the performances of stranded classical musicians as similar performances from Sony, who owned the majority of classical music recordings, and blocked them, preventing those classical musicians from getting paid for their work. That was just for starters, though. As I predicted, cops started blaring pop music during their encounters with the public in a bid to prevent any video recording from being shared online. 
Despite official condemnations, cops keep doing it. Kill switches and VIN locks go together like peanut butter and chocolate, and so it's no surprise that they're much beloved of the auto industry, the inventors of VIN locking. The subprime automotive lending industry is a pure predator, overcharging poor people who need cars to get to work. Like subprime house loans, subprime car loans are designed for default. By design, the borrower pays and pays, but eventually misses a payment, allowing the lender to repossess and resell the same car over and over again. To facilitate this system, trillions of dollars worth of subprime cars are kill-switched, fitted with ignition overrides that lenders can turn off if you miss a payment, or which can turn themselves on if the car detects that you've driven it past the county line in contravention of your lease terms. This has lots of ghastly failure modes. If the dealership loses track of your payment, it will brick your car and demand that you pay again. Or you might take your kids for a walk in the woods, not realizing that you've crossed the county line and tripped the immobilizer, until you try to drive home and realize that you are stranded in a literal dark forest. But those are retail kill switch failures. Kill switches also fail wholesale. When hackers break into car dealerships' computers, no language on earth contains the phrase as secure as the IT at a used car dealership. When that happens, every car the dealership has ever sold is bricked. From Medtronic to GM to Apple, VIN locking and kill switching are sold as security measures instituted to protect you, not empty your wallet. Those claims would be a lot more credible if these companies were actually good at security. It's pretty rich that the company that made a Jeep that was so insecure that hackers could remotely seize control of the steering, ignition, and brakes and drive it off the highway into a ditch tell us that we can't let third parties modify our cars lest they render them insecure. John Deere makes this claim. In its battles against right to repair, Deere styles itself as a guardian of the world's food supply, whose information security is all that stands between us and a Russian or Chinese or supervillain shutdown of the world's ag tech. They're not wrong. John Deere's decision to build ag tech that can be remotely controlled, disabled and updated, along with its monopolization of the world's ag tech market, means that anyone who compromises its system puts the whole world's food supply at risk. Which is a terrifying proposition, because John Deere has extraordinarily terrible information security. When sick codes probed Deere's security, they found glaring, serious errors that put the entire food supply chain at risk. Worse, John Deere seems to have no clue as to how bad it is at security. In the company's entire history, it has never once submitted a single bug to the U.S. government's Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures, CVE, database. As far as Deere knows, its security is literally perfect. John Deere is wildly imperfect. That means that the tool that Deere used to brick all of those stolen tractors in Chechnya is potentially available to even moderately skilled hackers who exploit Deere's reckless decision to build kill switches into its equipment and its negligent security. Kill switches and VIN locks go hand in hand, but they're also comorbid with security incompetence. Remember Medtronic? It's implanted medical devices, whose owners can only switch vendors with a scalpel and general anesthesia, are incredibly terrifyingly insecure, and Medtronic, like Deere, insists nothing is wrong. 
That's why a couple of security researchers had to build and demonstrate a, quote, universal remote for killing people with hacks of their implants before Medtronic would institute a voluntary recall of just one of its products. You know who understands how dangerous John Deere's kill switching and VIN locking is? Ukrainian farmers. Ukraine is a major exporter of illegal alternative firmware that replaces Deere's software with independently produced farmer-friendly code. Ironically, if the Russians who stole those Deere tractors manage to unbrick them, it will likely be with this Ukrainian software. That farmers working in a low-income, high-risk, high-instability nation would create firmware to liberate themselves from the rent-seeking of a multinational monopolist and the risks its remote-control software created is no surprise. High-risk, high-instability is now endemic to the world, not just Ukraine. The kill switches that gave those Russian looters their comeuppance are lurking in every deer tractor everywhere. As Kathy Gellis wrote for TechDirt, the reality is that if you've made it so a tractor owner can't use their own equipment, you might be a looter, but you also might be John Deere. The only difference is that the looter's behavior is more clearly lawless, whereas John Deere's is currently backed up by law. But the effect is just as wrong. We should be building tractors and phones and cars and ventilators and medical implants that are robust and reliant, maintainable and repairable, even when supply chains break. There are risks to this. A device without a kill switch is a little more attractive to thieves, but kill switches impose risks that vastly outstrip the risks they offset. In an increasingly risky world, that's not something we should be cheering on. Well, all right then, I'm going to go. I realized I forgot to tell you the other two reasons I had such a busy weekend. My family and I were at the big demonstration for abortion rights yesterday, and it's something that I wanted to mention this week on the podcast. I have been working for abortion rights for as long as I've been alive. Literally, the first picture of me in the newspaper is uh, when I was nine months old on my mother's lap 50 years ago as she was organizing a petition to legalize abortion in Canada without the indignity and injustice of having to have an all-male panel of doctors grant you permission. So 50 years later, we're still fighting this. I've done clinic defense and demonstrations and sit-ins and written letters and knocked on doors and given money, and here we are back again. And, you know, it's demoralizing, but being out there yesterday at Los Angeles City Hall with thousands and thousands of other people, it made me realize that we're going to fight this fight again, and this time we're going to win it for sure, because this time the fight goes beyond abortion. This time the fight is being explicitly made to the bodily autonomy, safety, and dignity of all kinds of marginalized people, including trans people, queer people, disabled people, people of color, indigenous people, and so on. And it's only once we expand the fight to that depth that we will actually be able to make this difference. The other thing I wanted to say is that I went to Senespia's outdoor screening of Jurassic Park in Los Angeles Historic Park. It's a national park here in LA, and it was glorious. And if you get a chance to see an outdoor movie this summer, it is just about the perfect COVID thing to do. Uh, I hope you will get a chance. It was great. And thank you to Senespia for putting it on. We, along with all the hundreds of other people who are there, really enjoyed it. Anyway, I'm going to go now. I have to write another column, but I hope you enjoy your week, and I hope that your spirits are not too low in these difficult times. And I will not talk to you next week because I'll be on an airplane, but in two weeks, I'll speak to you again. Bye. Bye.
You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.